Uh, hey, I want to introduce some real special partners to you before we dig into God's Word today. Across our four campuses, uh, these are the leaders on stage with me of our staff. We have over 100 staff that serve our four campuses, but uh, these folks up here, they form what we call the executive team. And so here at your left, this is Steve Boyd, and Steve's title is Executive Pastor of Operations. So anything related to building and grounds, uh, money-related issues, trustees, human resources, about a dozen other things, Steve does an incredibly good job covering all that. Clayton, you know, because he's a, a teaching pastor here, and so you see him on a regular basis, but what you may not know is that he... He also oversees our creative arts team that puts together our weekend services every weekend. And uh, here, newest members of our team is a new executive pastor of ministries, Eric Hamshow, and his wife, Stacia. And, and uh, Eric covers all of our disciple-making ministries, from cradle to uh, up through senior adults. So children's ministry, student ministry, adult ministry, he covers all of that, and he'll be beginning his job in January. We conducted an eight-month search, nationwide search, to find the right guy, and we found him in our backyard. He was living in Wheaton, working for Wheaton College. Previous to that, he had been on the staff, the executive team of a large church staff, and uh, we wanted to put Stacia up here with him so you'd see both of them as a couple, and you'd love on them and make them feel welcome. So can you give a warm welcome to all of these people up here? And... Uh, you know, one of the things we do so well as a church is uh, we support our leaders with prayer. And one of the ways we signify that, we stretch a hand out when we're praying for someone. So would you do that right now? If you're at one of the other campuses watching this, just stretch your hand toward the screen. It's your way of saying, we're standing in solidarity with you leaders, and we're going to pray for you now. So join me in prayer as your hands are extended toward these people. Lord God, I just thank you for the joy of partnering with people who love you dearly, who love your church, who love a lost world that they, uh, they want to reach with the good news of Jesus. So thank you so much for Steve and for Clayton and for Eric and for the uh, hundred and some staff at Christ Community Church. Uh, God, I, I want to pray that these people would walk with you, that they'd push roots down into your word, that you'd make them wise in the decisions they make. Uh, thank you for them. God, let us continue to bless them with our prayers throughout the course of days ahead. And God, now as we look into your word, we ask you to be our teacher. We ask you to open hearts that may have closed down or grown cold toward you, to warm us up again, to open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word that are applicable to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, give these folks one last hand, would you? Uh, we are all familiar with the expression, a second chance, although I had no idea how popular this expression was until I googled it about a week ago, a second chance, and I was amazed at all the groups that use this expression, a second chance, as their group or their organization's name. Uh, for example, an animal shelter where you can pick up a slightly used pet, a thrift store with secondhand clothing a recovery group for sex offenders, all named A Second Chance. Uh, there's a credit union for people struggling with debt, a construction company that uses salvaged materials, an employment agency for ex-felons, all named A Second Chance. There's a state lottery that accepts tickets that didn't win the first time around. 
There's a CPR training service. There's a, a listen to this, a collection to collect eclipse sunglasses that have been discarded and send them to schools in South America where the next eclipse will occur in 2019, all named A Second Chance. And then there are movies with this title. There's a 2011 movie about a young female gymnast who overcomes adversity to make the Olympics team a second chance. There's a 2014 movie about a crooked police detective who exchanges his own dead baby for the live baby of a druggie he arrests. A second chance. You're going to put that at the top of your Netflix list, won't you? Yeah. 2015, a romantic comedy movie about a couple struggling to make their marriage work. A second chance. Well, if I were to give this name, A Second Chance, to one of the books of the Bible, the book that would win hands down is the Old Testament book of Hosea. And that's going to be our text for today, so I'm going to give you a few minutes to find it. You're probably going to have to look in your table of contents, all right? So go to the Old Testament book of Hosea. And while you're turning, while you're, you're finding where it is, let me give you a little bit of historical background, a little bit of context to this book. If you've got your table of contents, the last 12 books of the Old Testament, 39 books in the Old Testament, the last 12 books are called the Minor Prophets. Now, why are they called the Minor Prophets? Is it because their, their message is less significant than the books that go right before them in the Bible called the major prophets? No, the fact of the matter is the major prophets uh, were written by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and they're called the major prophets because their books were longer. The, the minor prophets were written by guys with names like Hosea and, and Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and so on. And, and they're just shorter books. That's why they're called the Minor Prophets. They're not, not less significant. They're not less important. They're just shorter books. Hosea was written to address the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, let me explain. Israel, at this point in history, had been divided into two countries. There was a northern country or kingdom that retained the name Israel, still called Israel. Though sometimes when you're reading through Hosea, Hosea will refer to them as Ephraim because Ephraim was the largest tribe in the northern kingdom. So the northern kingdom still called Israel for the most part. Southern kingdom was called Judah. Now the northern kingdom that Hosea addressed, it was a mess. It, was, it, it had gone from one wicked king to another and these wicked kings had led the people uh, by and large into wickedness. And so God finally had had enough of this. God was about to allow the superpower of the day, the country of Assyria, to sweep in, to invade Israel and destroy it and carry its people off into captivity. But before that happened, God sent them a prophet by the name of Hosea. Hosea's job was to turn the people back to God. Hosea's job was to give them, you ready for this? Was to give them a second chance was to give them a second chance. And this second chance was motivated by God's great love for them. God's great love for wayward people. God's second chance love. That's the truth that Hosea was supposed to communicate. And he was to communicate this according to God's instructions in two ways. Not only in the written word, but also in a dramatized way. He was to act out to give the people a, a, a visual representation of God's second chance love. I'll explain that in, in just a moment. A picture's worth a thousand words, right? So he's going to dramatize this so they could see what, this is what a second chance love looks like. 
So today we're going to look at four pictures from the book of Hosea that paint for us a second chance love. If you haven't taken the outline from your program yet, I encourage you to do that. Here's the first picture. The first picture shows what spiritual adultery looks like. What spiritual adultery looks like. And if your Bible is open to Hosea chapter 1, let me read a few verses beginning at verse 2. It says, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So Hosea married Gomer, daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. This is the word of the Lord. Wow. How would you like an assignment like Hosea's? You know, here, here's your assignment. Jose, I want you to go marry someone who's going to cheat on you. Now, now uh, scholars debate what's meant by that expression, promiscuous woman, in these opening verses. Does this refer to the fact that when he first met Gomer, she was already sleeping around? Uh, possibly even, according to some scholars, possibly even a prostitute at one of the pagan shrines, a religious prostitute. Other scholars say no. No, there's no way that a holy God would have instructed his prophet, his spokesperson, to go and marry a promiscuous woman, a woman known, known at that point for her promiscuity. You know, the narrator of the text here, these scholars say, is speaking in retrospect. Okay, this, this is further down the road, and by this time she's shown her true colors. She's shown herself to be promiscuous, but when Hosea first meets Gomer, she's faithful to him. And, and this picture makes sense to me because this is supposed to be a picture of Israel's relationship with God. And when that relationship began, Israel was faithful to God. In fact, God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah uh, to the people, and he says this in Jeremiah 2, verse 2. He says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the, the wilderness. So initially, Israel had been faithful to God, but eventually God's people turned to other lovers. They became spiritually adulterous. Now, friends, spiritual adultery is God's frequent complaint against his people in Old Testament times. So what does spiritual adultery look like? What does it look like? I want you to turn over a couple of chapters to Hosea 7. Okay, and we're going to be flipping back and forth in the book of Hosea. This is why, by the way, it's great to bring your own Bible so you can mark it up as we go. Uh, Hosea is a wonderful book, and we're going to be skipping around through 14 different chapters of Hosea today. Hosea uses some very colorful metaphors to describe spiritual adultery. Much of this book is written in the form of Hebrew poetry. Uh, Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme, so don't expect it to rhyme as, as you read it, but it paints beautiful word pictures. The book of Hosea is full of these word pictures, so let, let me quickly describe four word pictures, uh, word pictures that tell us what compromise, people who compromise their love for God, what they look like, you know, what spiritual unfaithfulness looks like. The, the first word picture is found in verse 4. It says, they're all adulterers. Now, we're not talking physically here, we're, we're, we're talking spiritually. They're all adulterers, burning like an oven whose fire the baker need not stir. Okay, they're, they're burning, got to find my fire here. They're burning like a fire that the baker need not stir. In, a, in other words, they're hot for something, but they're not hot for God. 
You know, they're hot for something. If you want to know what they're hot for, just listen to them. Because they bubble over with excitement about what they're hot about, what they're passionate about, what fires their passion. In fact, they'll show you pictures on their cell phone. It may be a picture of their newest car or their latest vacation trip. Uh, they talk endlessly about their dog or about Cubs' off-season trades or about their favorite video game or their workout routine or politics or the latest Star Wars movie. They're fired up about these things. But God? Well, there, there's no burning enthusiasm for God in their lives. Not anymore. There, there's no excitement for Jesus. So what are you hot about? What are you hot about? Now, there's another word picture describing spiritual adultery in, in verse 8 of this chapter. Drop down to verse 8. It says, Ephraim, remember this is another name for northern Israel, Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat loaf not turned over. Now picture this, you're making a loaf of bread in ancient days, so you're cooking it in the fire. What happens to this loaf of bread if you forget to turn it over? Call it out. What do you think? Yeah, burns on the bottom, right? So what we're talking about here is imbalance. Spiritual adultery looks like imbalance in a person's life. In one area of their life, they're, they're really overdoing it. They're over the top. They're into shopping. They're into sports. They're, they're, they're into their work, their job. But on the other side... It's kind of doughy, it's kind of gooey, it's not getting cooked. They're underdeveloped, especially in God-related activities. They're into some things, but they're not reading their Bible. They're not serving the poor at all. They're not nurturing the spiritual lives of their kids. So how are you doing with respect to balance? Are you really fired up about something, but on the other side, when it comes to certain spiritual activities, you're undercooked. You're undercooked. There's a third picture for spiritual adultery. It's the very next verse, verse 9. It says, Foreigners sap his strength, but he does not realize it. His hair is sprinkled with gray, but he does not notice. Now, if you're, if you're 16 years old or you're 32 years old, you, you might not be able to identify with this particular metaphor, this old age one, right? But we're not talking about fading physical vitality here. Hosea is talking about fading spiritual vitality. Okay, there, there's gray showing up in your hair, assuming you've got hair. All right. And Hosea says, and you don't even know it. See, what happens when you move away from a love for God, your spiritual life begins to wither. And according to Hosea, you might not even recognize this is going on. You're becoming spiritually feeble, unhealthy, weak. There is a fourth picture for spiritual adultery. You'll find it in verse 11. It says, Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now calling to Assyria. So imagine this bird, okay, it's flitting around. It's, it's darting from one thing to another. This is the person who is looking for significance, looking for security, looking for a sense of, of happiness, and they're not finding it here, and they're not finding it there, and they continue to look. You've heard me say many times that every one of us has a God-shaped vacuum in our lives, and only God is big enough to fill it. So if we're trying to fill it up with other things, we're going we're gonna to come up empty every time. We're going to keep flitting around. 
Now, friends, don't you, don't you see this happen, especially during the Christmas season, when we run from shopping, shopping to parties to decorating to Christmas movies to family gatherings to baking cookies to uh, getaways, holiday getaways. And when the holiday season is finally over, we're exhausted. But we still have this hole in our hearts that never got filled by Jesus. We've been out and about loving everything else. We love this, we love it, but we, we haven't been loving Jesus. And so the hole is still there. Spiritual adultery. This is what spiritual adultery looks like. Now, one of the downsides of being a pastor as long as I've been a pastor is, is that I've been privy to a lot of broken marriages. Broken because one of the partners was unfaithful to the other. And all I can tell you is that when that happens, that the pain on the part of the innocent party is excruciating. You know, the person who is cheated on experiences feelings of rejection and betrayal and, and righteous anger. So is this how God feels? Is this how God feels when we love someone or something more than him? Is this how God feels when, when we turn away from him for our sense of significance, when we turn away from him for our sense of security or of happiness, and we seek those things in some other location? Listen, friends, when we engage in spiritual adultery, it breaks God's heart. When we wander from a love for God, a passion for God, it breaks God's heart. Now, here's what it does to us, okay? This is the second picture. First picture, what spiritual adultery looks like. Second picture, what severe consequences look like. Now, before we take a look at some of the severe consequences of spiritual adultery that are spelled out in Hosea, let me, let me warn you of something. You, you may drift away from God and experience no consequences at all, but that's not a good sign. If you experience no consequences at all, what it means is you never had a relationship with God to begin with. Okay, let me use an analogy here to help you understand this. Let's say you come up to me after the service today and you say, Jim, I no longer love you. I love somebody else. That would not rock my world. Okay, because I never knew you loved me in the first place. Now, if Sue comes up to me today and she says, Jim, I no longer love you. I love somebody else. Oh my goodness, that's devastating. Just destroys our relationship. It de destroys our, our, our marriage. There's going to be dire consequences for our marriage if my wife is backing away from her love for me. Okay, so the consequences we're looking at are only for people who've surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ, but now are wandering away from their first love. If, you, if you're not experiencing these consequences, if life couldn't be better, even though you love other things more than you love God, again, that's not a good sign. That's a sign that you're spiritually dead. You're spiritually still in your sins. Jesus has yet to save you from your sins. And we'll talk more about that in a few moments. But if you've ever surrendered your life to Jesus, but today your heart is not warm toward him, your heart has grown cold, I want you to know that God's not going to let you go without a fight. I want you to know that God's not going to let you go without a fight. He loves you too much. And so he's going to use consequences to draw you back. 
Let's take a look at several of those consequences. The first is hardship. And I want you to go back to chapter 2 of Hosea. Okay, again, we're flipping back and forth in this book. And I want you to pick it up at verse 5. God describes uh, his unfaithful followers here, those who have drifted away from a, a love for him, as being like a wife who's committed adultery and then given birth to illegitimate kids. Okay, so verse 5, their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I'll go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Now listen to God's response. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. Thorn bushes. You ever try to walk through a hedge of thorn bushes? Ouch. God says that if we turn away from loving him and we start loving other things in his place, he's going to allow some painful repercussions in our lives. He's going to allow some thorn bushes. Now, now Clayton talked a bit about this last week. He said that, that God uses hardship to get our attention when we've wandered off his path. Now, please understand, this doesn't mean that every hardship in our life is an indication that we've left God's path. In fact, sometimes it's, it's just the opposite. Sometimes it's because you're on God's path that the world doesn't like and Satan doesn't like that you experience hardship. But when you experience those kinds of hardships, they seem purposeful. You know that God is, is right by your side. But the thornbush hardships that God warns us about in Hosea, they're an entirely different matter. You know, this is when we sense that God is allowing us to experience maybe illness or unemployment or some relational conflict that won't go away or a financial crisis because we're no longer on, our, on his path. And we're, we're now trudging through the thorn bushes that line both sides of the path. Here, here's a second consequence of wandering away from a love for God. It's It's emptiness. Emptiness. Look at the very next verse, chapter 2, verse 7. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. You know, this is what I keep referring to as that God-shaped vacuum in our lives that only God is capable of filling, that if we try to fill this hole with other things, we will keep chasing According to this verse, we will keep chasing, chasing. You'll be chasing significance. You'll be chasing security. You'll be chasing happiness. But you will never catch it. You will never catch it. Not in a lasting sense. Now, I had a little taste of this a week ago. It wasn't full-blown spiritual adultery, but it was a bit of that empty chasing described in this verse. I, I took Sue into the city to celebrate our, our wedding anniversary, and we were in for a little under three days. But when I, when, when I plan an event like this, I pack it full of fun stuff to do. So in less than, than three days, we saw two live productions. We had dinner with friends who traveled in from the suburbs. We visited a museum. We went window shopping. We saw the Lincoln Park Zoo Lights. We celebrated a mini Christmas with my son and daughter-in-law who live in the city and won't be available at Christmas time. We enjoyed ice skating both at Millennium Park and at Maggie Daly Park. When I say enjoyed, I don't mean we did it. We watched people and made fun of them, okay? And we pushed our way through the Chris Kindle Market at Daly Plaza. We did all of that. 
in less than three days' time. But as I look back over our time, it was less than fulfilling because we didn't savor God a whole lot. We, you know, we got too busy with all of the fun stuff on our itinerary. We read our Bible every day. When our friends came out for dinner, we, you, know, you couldn't help talking about what Jesus is up to in our lives. But it was minimal. And, and so not surprisingly, I'd say that our getaway, while fun, was less than fulfilling. Kind of like you ever bite into cotton candy. You know, you, you get that big, bushy thing of cotton candy at the fair with such high hopes. And then you take a bite of it, and what happens? It dissolves to nothing in your mouth. That's what we're talking about here. Some of us have lives that are packed full of activities and stuff and people, and we're chasing after all the things we love, but not catching any deep sense of fulfillment because that only comes when you're chasing hard after God. That, that only comes when you're loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Third consequence of turning away from a passionate love for God is a loss of God's presence in your life. You lose a sense of God's presence. We're, you know, we're like the guy who thinks he can enjoy all the benefits of having a wife at home while carrying on an affair at work. But then when the wife finds out about the affair, what happens? She's gone. I mean, she's gone relationally, she's gone emotionally, she's gone physically until that guy renounces his mistress. Okay, flip over to Hosea 5 and drop down to verse 5 of Hosea 5. We, we see the same thing going on here with Israel. Verse 5, Israel's arrogance testifies against them. The Israelites, even Ephraim, stumble in their sin. They're they're spiritually adulterous. Judah also stumbles with them. When they go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, okay, now they want to find God in the midst of their wandering away from a love for God. When they go to seek the Lord, they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them because they're unfaithful to the Lord. Now, back to the real-life drama of Hosea and Gomer for a moment, when, when Gomer cheats on Hosea multiple times, she ends up having babies by a couple of different guys. And God, God says to Hosea, this is what I want you to name your babies. I want you to name this, this next child, Lo Ruhamah, which means no longer loved. And the next baby comes along and he says, I want you to name this baby Lo Ami, which means not my people. God is trying to send a message, a visual message to Israel. You've left your love for me. And so you're no longer going to experience my love. I'm going to treat you as if you're not my people in the hope that you'll return to me. Now that's what happens to us, friends, when other things crowd out our love for God. We lose a sense of God's presence in our lives. I've admitted to you before at Christ Community Church that I sometimes pray something bad for some of you. So let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, every Monday, uh, Monday morning, I spend time in prayer. And one of the things I, I pray for is the, the impact that our weekend service has had on people's lives. 
So I pray for all of you who've attended across our four campuses that as you move into the week at school or work or whatever, you'd have a sense of God's presence in your life, that the fellowship and the worship and the Bible teaching that you experienced here would, would help you in your daily life. And if you couldn't make it here because you were sick uh, or, or because you were on the road, I pray that God would give you health, restore your health. I pray that God will bring you home safely. However, if you missed because you were doing something frivolous, if you missed because you were carting your kids around to some sports event or doing family fun or shopping, or my prayer for you is, God, let them experience a loss of your presence in their lives, a sense that, wow, that was a boneheaded decision to make because now I'm moving into the week, not having gathered with God's people to exalt God, and I've lost my sense of connection with him. My prayer for you is that you'll realize, when you lose that sense of connection, that you'd realize it. And you'd say, I'm never going to do that again. I want to be in a place where God is loved. I want to be in a place that's going to build me up spiritually. Don't, don't let other loves crowd out your love for God, or you will experience a loss of God's presence in your life. You get it? Good. Fourth consequence when spiritual adultery happens, and that is slavery. Flip over a couple of chapters to Hosea 9. Drop down to verse 3. God says this about the spiritually unfaithful people of Israel. Verse 3, he says, They will not remain in the Lord's land. Ephraim will return, Israel that is, Ephraim will return to Egypt and eat unclean food in Assyria. Now, 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 here's the picture. Egypt was where God's people had spent over 400 years in slavery. Assyria was the country that was about to invade and carry them off into captivity. So we have two images here of slavery. See, when other loves crowd out our love for God, li listen, when other loves crowd out our love for God, those other loves often bring with them some form of slavery. It may be an addiction to something... We've loved like alcohol or porn, an addiction slavery. It may be a codependency slavery in an unhealthy relationship. We've, we've drifted from God and now we're in a relationship that's not a good relationship, but we feel stuck in it. It may be the tyranny of a schedule that has us always running around and feeling exhausted and we feel like we can't get off this treadmill. It, it may be the sense that this thing we love, this thing that we're giving ourselves to, whether it's your favorite sports team or work or the grandkids or whatever, that it now controls our moods. So when the thing we love, when it's up, we're up. And when it's in the pits, we're in the pits. It's just another form of slavery. Now let me tell you something. God's love always makes us free. God's love always makes us free. Other loves have a tendency to enslave us or control us. Okay, this is a picture of the consequences of spiritual adultery. Let's move on to point three. Here's a third picture that Hosea paints in this book. What unrelenting love looks like. What unrelenting love looks like. Looks like we are in the sixth week of a seven-part series called Experiencing God's Love, and you were probably hoping that we get around to the love part, okay? That's where we're at right now. After considering the consequences of spiritual adultery, hardship, emptiness, a loss of God's presence, slavery, 
A natural conclusion would be, well, I guess God is finished with people who wander away from him. You know, if a love for other stuff has crowded out a love for God in our lives, and especially if that condition has persisted from some time, for some time, and especially if we're, we've now fallen into behaviors that we know are dishonoring to God, then God obviously wants nothing more to do with us, right? Wrong. He's the God of the second chance. He's the God of the third chance and the fourth chance and the 157th chance. God's love is unrelenting. And to underscore that truth, God asked Hosea to dramatize it in his relationship with Gomer. Now, friends, this is the amazing part of the story. Turn over to chapter 3. Let me read to you what happens next after Gomer has been unfaithful to Hosea. This is God's instructions to Hosea what to do. Okay, verse 1 of chapter 3, the Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she's loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Sounds like something you'd order at IHOP, doesn't it? Yeah, I'll have those sacred raisin cakes. It's, it was something that was offered to the pagan god Baal. It was, a, it was an offering. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. And then I told her, you're to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. Now, in this short paragraph of a few verses, I see four pictures of God's unrelenting love. Four things we learn about God's love here. First is that God's love pursues God's love pursues. Please note the very first word of God's instructions to Hosea. He says in verse 1, go. Go show your love to your wife again, though she's loved by another man and is an adulteress. Go. You know, Hosea, don't sit around waiting for Gomer to recognize her wrongdoing and come crawling back to her. You take the initiative. You pursue her. And this is a picture, friends, of what God does with us when we wander away from a love for him. Some of you have wandered a little bit away. Some of you wandered far away from God. And I I want you to know that God's love relentlessly pursues you. In fact, one of the reasons you're here today, you're listening to this message from Hosea, is because of God's unrelenting love. It's all part of God's search and rescue mission to bring you back. God's love pursues. Second, God's love redeems. God's love redeems. Hosea had to buy Gomer back. Evidently, her promiscuity had led her into some sort of sex trafficking slavery. Bible scholars tell us that the the price of a slave back in Hosea's day would have been 20 shekels of silver, but Hosea pays only 15. In other words, she was damaged goods. He got her at a discount. We were all damaged goods. Our sin had enslaved us. God had to redeem us. He had to buy us back, and he did it not with silver or gold. He did it with the precious lifeblood of his one and only son. Jesus came to earth that first Christmas, lived a perfect life, died on a cross because death is the payment. 
Death is the payment demanded for our sin. Our sin separates us from God, the giver of life, and the consequence is death. Jesus paid the price. Death on a cross so that he could offer forgiveness and new life to everyone who surrenders to him. God's love redeems at the cost of his own son's life. And I want to tell you something. If you've surrendered to Jesus at some point in the past, but currently you're wandering from him, I want you to know that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is still powerful and still has the potential to redeem you again and again and again and again to bring you back, to bring you back. Third, God's love blesses. This is unbelievable. After Hosea buys Gomer's freedom, he says to her, look again at verse 3, he says, then I told her, you are to live with me many days. So Hosea immediately returns Gomer to her former status as his beloved wife. He doesn't say to her, hey, babe, I bought your freedom because I felt sorry for you. But don't get any ideas like our relationship is back intact because it's not. You can come home with me, but you're living out in the tool shed now. Now, Hosea welcomes Gomer home and he offers her his close companionship. He says, you are to live with me. You're to live with me. Now, I want you to keep your finger here in Hosea 3. And I want you to go to the last chapter of Hosea Chapter 14, this is a passage I can hardly read without uh, tears coming to my eyes because this is how God promises to bless wayward Israel if they'll return to their first love. This is how God promises to love you today. If your heart has grown cold to God, if you'll come back to God today and love him passionately, I I want you to picture this. Now, this is poetry, so it's, you know, it's a bit frilly, if you would. But this is how God sees you. This is is how God wants to bless you. Pick it up at verse 4. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. God wants to heal your waywardness and, and, and love you. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon. He will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. People will dwell again in his shade. They will flourish like the grain. They will blossom like the vine. Israel's fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. See, God is not just willing to take us back when we've wandered away from from him from loving him, he welcomes us with open arms. He promises to bless us. Fourth, God's love expects. Go back to chapter 3. Okay, God's unrelenting love expects. Just after Hosea tells Gomer that he wants her to live with him again in close relationship, look at the second half of verse 3. Hosea tells her that he expects... Now listen, he expects her to put an end to her promiscuity. No more other men. Hosea wants to be the sole focus of Gomer's love, just like God wants to be the focus of our love. So God doesn't pursue us and redeem us and bless us just so we can keep cheating on him. God expects a change of behavior. God expects faithfulness from us. 
So if you've wandered from God, God's unrelenting love is pursuing you. He wants you back. He wants to bless you. But he's got some expectations. And the first one is spelled out in the fourth picture we're going to look at. What genuine repentance looks like. Okay, what genuine repentance looks like. Now, if you sit down and you read through the book of Hosea, which I hope you'll do sometime this week, and sit down and read through Hosea, 14 chapters, it'll take you about 20 minutes to do it. As you read through Hosea, look for the word turn or return. Turn or return. Circle it every time you find it in your Bible because this is the key word in Hosea. And this is a picture of repentance. Okay, the Bible word repentance just means you've been going in one direction away from God and you do an about face and you start moving in a new direction toward God. Let me do that again, okay? Right now, you know, some of us know, we've been moving away from God. Our hearts have become colder and colder toward Him. And repentance is doing a 180-degree about face and starting to walk in God's direction again. It means telling God how sorry we are for loving other things more than Him. It means telling God that we're sorry for any pattern of disobedience that's been dishonoring to Him. That turn, that 180-degree turn, means we start thanking him that though we were wayward, he pursued us, he redeemed us at the cost of Christ's life. It means that we tell God we now want to pursue him as our top priority. We want, we want a hunger for his word. We want to walk in obedience to him. In just a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do what I've been talking about here, genuinely repent. I'm going to invite you to turn from walking away from God and start heading back toward God. And I want to make it clear who this invitation is aimed at today because we often extend an invitation to explorers, people who are checking out the faith but have never surrendered to Jesus. And we say, this could be the day when you surrender for the first time to him. But this is not my invitation today. My invitation today is for those of you who know Christ, my invitation today is for those of you who've surrendered your life to him at some point in the past. But for the past month, or for the past year, or the past five years, or there's been a growing coldness in your heart toward God. You don't love God with a first love sort of enthusiasm. There's no passion there for him. And as we've been going through Isaiah, you, Hosea, you've been saying to yourself, you know, this is me. It may not be full-blown spiritual adultery, but I'm on the wrong path. I need to turn around. I need to come back to a full-fledged, passionate love for God. That's who the invitation is going to be extended to today. Now, before we extend that invitation, I want you to, to read with me two descriptions of repentance in Hosea. One of them is insincere repentance, and the other is the real deal. Because as we call ourselves to repent today, we want to make sure that we got the real deal. So the insincere repentance is described in chapter 6, and I think it may surprise you. Because I think as we read this together, you're going to say, well, what's wrong with that? That looks pretty good to me. So let me read it to you. Verse 1, Israel says, come, let us return to the Lord. Though he's torn us to pieces, he will heal us. He's injured us, but he'll bind up our wounds. After two days, he'll revive us. On the third day, he'll restore us, that we may live in his presence. So let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? 
Look at God's response in the very next verse. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your your love is like the morning mist. It's like the early dew that disappears. Now, the first time I read this, I thought, you know, what is God's problem here? Okay, these people repent, and God says, you know, I just don't trust it. You know, this fresh love that you've expressed to me, it's like the morning dew. It's going to disappear momentarily. What was missing in their repentance? Why was their repentance somehow false or insincere? I'll tell you what was missing. A sorrow for their sin. There, there, there's no I'm sorry here. There's no God, I'm sorry that other loves have pushed you out of the picture of my life. There, there's no God, I'm sorry that in the, in the process I've got trapped in some behaviors that I know have been dishonoring to you. There, there's no God, I'm sorry that after you redeemed me at the price of Christ's blood, I've, I've sort of taken it in a cavalier fashion instead of really loving you with all my heart. God says, that, you know, that repentance is going to get you nowhere. Now, now flip over a few pages to the very last chapter again, Hosea chapter 14, because I want to show you what the real deal looks like. Okay, this is what sincere repentance looks like. The opening verse, return Israel to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Okay, God's waiting to hear something from your mouth. If you've strayed from a first love for God, here's what he's waiting to hear. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Listen to this. Assyria can't save us. We're not going to mount war horses. We we will never again say our gods to what our hands have made. For in you the fatherless find compassion. What's in the repentance here? God, I'm sorry for my waywardness. God, these other gods, these things that I've been chasing, whether it's my job or, you know, what? What is it for you? What are are you chasing? These things have not been fulfilling. I'm no longer going to chase them. I'm going to chase you. You're the God of compassion. Thank you for your love. That's what genuine repentance, that's what a 180 turnaround looks like, friends. Now, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me across our four campuses. Let's pray together right now. And here's what I want you to do. I believe God has been speaking to you. You know, we sometimes think that there are two groups of people who attend our our services. There are the passionate Christ followers, and then at the other extreme, there are those exploring the faith, just kicking the tires. But I want to tell you there's a large third group, maybe bigger than the other two groups, And that's a group of people who, though they've surrendered their lives to Christ, at this point in time, their hearts are not warm to him like they should be. They're not passionately in love with him like they should be. And so I may be describing you, and if that's the case, I want to pray for you. God's unrelenting love wants you back. He wants you fully in love with him. So if that's you, here's what I want you to do. In my closing prayer, I want you to stand. I'm going to pray over you as you stand. Don't stand and then sit back down. Go go ahead. Start standing right now. Up in the balcony, on the main floor. If you want a return, I want a full-fledged love for Jesus in my life. Stand to your feet. Stand in Streamwood Bartlett. Stand in DeKalb right now. Stand down in Blackberry Creek. Stand here in St. Charles. You're saying, this is what I need. I need a love for God like I used to have. You know, there was a day when my passion for God burned hot. 
I want that heat back. So if you need that, you just stand right now and stay standing. Keep going. I know some of you know it, but you're not standing yet. And there's not going to be a return without a full repentance, without a genuine, yep, I want his love in my life again. I've been praying for you all week, friends. I've been praying that you'd have the courage to say, yep, I've slipped away and I want back. So stand to your feet if that's you. God, I want to I pray for all my brothers and sisters because that's what they are. These are not unbelievers standing before you. These are not people who've never surrendered to Jesus. These are people who've given you their hearts. But like every one of us in our four auditoriums right now, at this point in time, they have sort of grown cold. And maybe it's been the holiday season. Maybe it's been the busyness of life. Maybe it's gone longer than the holiday season. Maybe it's been a year or two or five and, and perhaps in some of our lives, some of us who are standing, God, there are patterns of disobedience that we don't like, and we feel enslaved by them, and we want to be free. We want to return to that, that day when we used to love you wholeheartedly and experience the fullness of your presence in our lives. And so we come to you in repentance. God, the people who are standing, we say right now, forgive our sins. We don't want to turn to other gods anymore. We want to renounce the things that have been taking first place in our lives. We want you to be our priority. We thank you that your love is a second chance love and a third and a fourth and a fifth and on and on. Thank you, God. Thank you for bringing us back to yourself. Teach us what it means now to take the next steps we need to take to secure this return, to make sure that it doesn't burn away like the morning mist, but it stands.